Amen. All right. Can you hear me coming through? All right, I turned it up a little bit, so if it gets too loud, y'all can uh, check with it. And maybe, Dale, if you wouldn't mind, just every now and then take a peek at the live stream, see if anybody's on there saying there's an issue. I switched out some wiring with this microphone, so I just kind of want to make sure if we go dead on there, you can just let me know and I can switch back to this one. But it sounds like it's coming through loud and clear. We should be good to go. have a, just a couple of things to tell you right now, and then we'll move towards the, the text for this morning and get into the preaching. We are missing several people today. Joe Elvin is out of town and traveling as are Ronnie and Lisa who went to New Jersey to be with family. And then I got a text today from Brother Moses that said he had a wedding to attend, but he should be back with us next Sunday as well. And also Rabin asked us for prayer that he's got a car repair that he has to deal with and that he's trying to take care of that. So if he hasn't got that resolved yet, that might be why he is not here this morning. And I was going to tell him if he was here, he told me at the end of uh, the preaching last week, he gave a thought that I said, I don't know why none of the commentaries I checked told me what Rabin had to say. So Rabin needs to get his own commentary. But we were talking about the Mount of Transfiguration and how Jesus said in the verses preceding that, some of you here will not die until you see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. And we talked about how they saw him coming in his kingdom power, in his kingly glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But also, if one of the ones that heard that was Jesus' disciples was the Apostle John, John on the Isle of Patmos literally saw in a vision with his own eyes all of those end time events, including the king coming in his glory. So I just thought that was a good uh, uh, thought that he added that uh, I usually do that about three or four times after the preaching. I'll get home and say, I forgot to say that and I wish I'd heard that. And then I learned something later that I didn't. But let's pray for Brother Rabin that hopefully he'll be able to get that taken care of and be back with us soon. And then very briefly, the next two Wednesday nights, we have guest speakers this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. will be Brother Paul Gearhart. And then Wednesday night, May 11th, the following Wednesday night, we have our Missions Emphasis Night with Brother Wilkerson, who's going to Africa. So hopefully as many of us can be here as we can, that we can establish a relationship with him as we pray about taking him on for monthly support as we look to start our missions program this year. And then Sunday, May 15th, we'll have bowling at 8 p.m. And then Sunday night, uh, May 29th, we'll have the in-home fellowship night at Ronnie and Lisa's house at 5.30 p.m. So you can make a note of those on your calendar or check the church website under the events tab. I have all of those updated, I think, except for Brother Paul being with us, and he'll be with us this Wednesday night. So if you're able to make it this Wednesday or the following one, we have guest speakers. And the very last thing I have for you to pray about is this week is Teacher Appreciation Week. And so this Tuesday, I'll be bringing a gift to Meadows Elementary School that is from all of us at at the church that we just want to let them know that we appreciate them, but also hopefully establish a relationship with them, be able to be a blessing to our community, always with the driving force being the heart of the gospel and connecting them to Jesus Christ. But I got some help Wednesday night. We prepared bags with their names on it and with some small gifts such as gum and mints and pencils and school supplies, along with a little booklet, either from Dr. Paul Chapel or Dr. Carrie Smith that explains the gospel that would be a witness to them. And also I told them in the note, if there's anything we can do to be a blessing to the school or to families in the community who may be in need to please let us know. So we'll bring them breakfast, some donuts and juice along with those gifts this morning. So just pray that the Lord would bless that and every little thing that we do to try and connect with the people in our community and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible this morning, our main text is going to be in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we have several lengthy passages of Scripture that we will bounce back and forth between Matthew 24, and then in just a moment, we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 6. So it might be helpful throughout this message, and what I suspect will be a two-part message, is if you save a place around Genesis chapter 6 and save a place around Matthew 24 so that as we go back and forth, you can have quick reference to 
follow along with that or on your electronic device, however you would like to follow. And other than that, I think we only have two other places that we will turn and read a lengthy passage throughout the course of these two messages. And when we have one verse here or there scattered throughout the Bible, those ones we will have up on the screen. So Matthew chapter 24, the title of the message this morning is As in the Days of Noah, As in the Days of Noah. We're going to get to the text here in just one moment, but if you've read much of Matthew chapter 24, you know that it's a very long chapter. It contains many interesting teachings and things that have been debated about what exactly it means when it refers to the end days and to the coming of Jesus Christ. A lot of topics that we could dive in and go verse by verse and dissect different concepts, such as is the pre-tribulation rapture still taught? And when is it referring to Jesus Christ? coming to the earth at the end of the tribulation period to set up his kingdom. But I want to say all that to say I'm down to come back to this chapter someday and probably will plan to do so and go verse by verse for several weeks and get off into the weeds and go through all of that. But this morning, that is not the main purpose that I have. This morning, we're going to look at the the beginning of the chapter, what Jesus said to his disciples, and then we're going to look at verses 36 and 37, and we're going to focus on the fact that Jesus told his disciples that in the days of his coming, in the days when we are nearing right up to the end, when Christ is ready to execute the rapture, the tribulation period, and his coming to the earth to set up his earthly kingdom for seven years, Jesus said those days will be as it was in the days of Noah. And we're going to look back at Genesis 5, 6, and 7 and see a description of what was taking place on earth during that time period and in what ways Jesus Christ said the last days will be comparable unto the days of Noah. And that will be the main theme of the message this week and God willing next week. And we will talk a little bit probably next week about what what it is referring to when it says that Jesus is coming, the pre-tribulation rapture, and a few of those things. But the main point we want to do is look at the fact that Jesus said when the judgment days are coming, when the end of all things are being unleashed on this earth, it will share many characteristics with the days of Noah and with what we see taking place on the earth in Genesis chapter 6. Matthew chapter 24, let's look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. They're looking here at the temple and Jesus gives a prophecy that the temple itself, the stones that made up that temple in Jerusalem would one day be cast down, that the temple would be dismantled. That prophecy came true in 70 AD when Jerusalem came under siege and the temple was destroyed. And one of my historians helped me out. Was that the Romans that carried that out? Thank you, sir. I believe that was it. I got a yes from Dale and Fabian, so it has to be right if they agree with me. Just kidding. I'm going to get going here in a minute this morning. But Jesus, as far as I can tell, does not give them the exact answer as to when the temple is going to be destroyed. There are some people who describe themselves as preterist. And what they mean by that is that they believe that all of the end time events have already been fulfilled, that all of the prophecies of Matthew 24, Matthew 25, the book of Revelation and Thessalonians, all of those prophecies have already come true in history and they happened within the first 100 years that Jesus returned to heaven. Now, as I've often said, the end time events have many different interpretations. There's many different beliefs around the timing of when these things will happen. And I believe wholeheartedly that I have many people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we agree on salvation. We agree that the Bible is the word of God and we take a somewhat different approach to interpreting the scriptures. And I allow for people to have those different views and to consider them as a brother or sister in Christ for they are complex and nuanced teachings. However, 
there are a few of those views, such as post-millennial or amillennial views, that I just don't believe are biblical, because they will look at the millennial kingdom, and they will say those scriptures about Christ setting up his kingdom on earth are all figurative. They all are not literal, and they are fulfilled in other ways, such as when it says people will live with Christ on the earth earth, and reign with him for a thousand years. That's actually referring to saints in heaven living with him, even though it says they will be with him and reign on the earth. I do not believe that those views are biblical, and I do not believe that the preterist view is biblical or even possible. There's just too many direct, exact prophecies that Jesus said will happen before the end of days are upon us that have not happened yet. Throughout Daniel chapter 9 and Matthew 24 and 25 and the book of Revelation and comparing the prophecies, we see that Jesus said, when those people on earth look and see the abomination of desolation happening in the temple, that then the next three and a half years will be the worst tribulation that the world has ever known. And that all that live upon the earth will be forced to receive the mark of the beast, either in their forehead or in their right hand. And if they do not receive it and worship the beast, which is the Antichrist, they will not be able to buy or sell. At the end of that three and a half year period, Jesus said he will physically come to the earth, will divide the sheep and the goats. Those who know him as savior will be able to enter into the kingdom. And those who do not know him will be cast into hell and he will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign with a rod of iron over the earth for a thousand years. And there's no which scenario in which that was fulfilled in 70 AD. And the problem with interpreting Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation as figurative allegories that are not literally true is that if we could approach all of those clear prophecies of Jesus Christ where he said he's coming again, where he said he's going to set up his kingdom, where he said he's going to divide the sheep from the goats and find a way to allegorize them away or make them look at like types and pictures and say that it's not a true and literal teaching then I'm afraid we could allegorize and explain away any teaching in the word of God if we wanted to. You have to take your your hermeneutic and your principles of Bible interpretation and throw them completely out of the window and approach those scriptures that are prophecies completely different as you would appro- than you would approach any other scripture in order to come up with that view that all of these things have taken place already. However, in 70 AD, there no doubt was a picture of what is to come when the the temple was desecrated. And we know that the temple will be desecrated in the tribulation period for the Antichrist will walk into the temple and declare himself to be God. And at that point, he will turn on the Jews and will persecute them and seek to kill them. And at that point, he will give life to the image of the beast. And he will say, you have to worship me and you have to receive the mark of the beast in order to buy or sell. In 70 AD, no doubt there was a picture or a type of that. But as the disciples come to Jesus, they ask him three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? Which to my knowledge of this passage, Jesus is not going to give them an exact date, just as he will not give them an exact date of when he is returning to the earth. But then they ask him two other questions in verse three. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? The destruction of the temple. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So the rest of the chapter that you can read all the way down to verse 51 and continuing into chapter 25 is Jesus answering these questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed, which he takes a pass on giving them an exact date? And then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And the answer is that much of the direct references to the coming of Christ in Matthew 24 are referencing when he comes at the end of the tribulation period physically to the earth to defeat the devil and the Antichrist and to set up his kingdom and to rule and reign for a thousand years. 
that's the general teaching of this chapter. And again, to go verse by verse, we can do another time, but would be a whole series as unto itself. But we're going to skip down now all the way to verse number 36. And having set just a little bit of a background of what it is that Jesus is talking about, we're going to now focus in on the theme that Jesus said when they said, what's the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? One of the signs that he referenced is that in those last days, the earth will share many qualities with the earth in the days of Noah and of the flood. I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but I'm going to go ahead and say it before I forget it. It's easy to look around us at the earth and to say the earth is more wicked than it's ever been. And there's so much temptation into being a Christian. And this is just a horrible day and age to try and live for Jesus Christ. And it's true that as we head towards the end, there's a lot of intensifying of evil and that technology and the internet has allowed the world to unite in a way that God stopped during the Tower of Babel and has allowed wickedness to spread and wickedness and the knowledge of evil is more available than it has ever been. And it presents a lot of unique challenges. But if you want to learn about the nature of mankind and our sin nature and what we are like and what we tend to do when God removes restrictions, when God removes his hand and gives some freedom to mankind and says, okay, just go ahead and do whatever you want. Start reading your Bible, Genesis chapter one and verse number one, and you reach Genesis chapter six. Now there's a big time period that has passed where we don't know a lot of the details, but we get little reminders that fill in the gaps and little bits of information that they built whole societies and they had inventions and they actually were pretty well advanced. They were not cavemen. They had societies and the earth was populated and the population grew. But six chapters into your Bible, you will see God looking at the earth and he says, it is so wicked that I have to destroy every life on this planet except for one man and his family and start over again. And part of what we'll talk about is that God then after the flood added more restrictions and guardrails that hedged in mankind and made it harder for them to unite in wickedness. For when he gave us more freedom, we just went all the way completely pedal to the metal to where God looked at the earth and he said, it's wicked and I'm going to destroy it. And let me note this too. We're going to read in just a moment words of Jesus Christ. If your Bible is like mine, the letters will be red letters where Jesus was speaking. And Jesus spoke of Noah and of the flood as an actual historical event. Some seminary professors will say, well, I believe in the Bible and I believe that Jesus was a good man who taught us some good things. But the Old Testament's not literally true. It's all just illustrations and pictures and kind of made up stories to teach us how to live. But Jesus himself, while he was in the flesh, referred to Adam and Eve in the creation account as an actual historical fact and an account of what happened. He referred to Noah and the flood in the same way, to Lot and to Sodom and Gomorrah in the exact same way. And also another one that people struggle with sometimes to the story of Jonah and the great fish that swallowed him up. And I just want to say this morning that if Jesus Christ believes that the Bible is the word of God and that the Old Testament stories were literally true and that contained in the copies of copies of copies that existed in the day of Jesus, of the Hebrew Old Testament, so much so that he went into the synagogue and opened the scroll and began to read from Isaiah. And he said to the Jews, do ye not know the scriptures? Have ye not read? If he pointed to the preserved word of God that was printed in their hand in their day and age and said, I believe it and looked at the Old Testament and said, it is the word of God. And those stories are literally true. Then I believe it as well. And I say, let God be true and every man a liar. And we shouldn't have a chip on our shoulder or a hatred in our heart. But if mankind, no matter who they are, seminary professor or not, tells us something that is contrary to the word of God, then we are to say, I believe God. I believe the Bible. I stand with Jesus and Jesus validated that the written word is the word of God. It is literally true. It is preserved for us and we hold it in our lap. 
this morning. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And what a blessed truth it is to know that long after this earth has passed away, the elements have melted with a fervent heat. This Bible and these words of God himself that we hold this morning will still stand true and tall without one error in them. Verse 36. This is our text this morning. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Here Jesus tells us that in the days that he comes to set up his kingdom and to judge this earth, there will be many parallels between the days of Noah and when the flood came to the earth when Jesus comes. We can look at these things and compare them to our earth today. And I think we can see clearly that whenever it's going to happen, we cannot predict the event. But this world is on a collision course with God and with the day of judgment. I'm going to turn now to Genesis chapter 6. As I said, we're going to go back and forth between Matthew 24 and Genesis chapter 6. So if you want to save your place there, we'll look at a few of these verses. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number five. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Number one, we see parallels between the second coming of Christ and the days of Noah. We see that in the days of Noah, there were evil imaginations, evil imaginations, so much so that God described it in verse number five, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth was so corrupted with sin that within the heart and the mankind of people who lived in the days before the flood, God describes it as a continual, unending path where it rolled on and on and on, where what they considered in their mind, what they desired in their heart, what they were living in, what they pondered, God said it was only evil continually. And we look at the earth about us and sometimes we see horrible crimes that people commit and we think, how could that person have committed that crime? Or how could this spiritual leader have fallen into sin that was so dark? And the Bible tells us that long before an evil action is committed, evil imaginations exist in our heart. Jesus told the Pharisees when they came and they said, your disciples ate something and they didn't wash their hands before they ate it. They violated the tradition and they had traditions that went along with the law about special ceremonies of washing of the hands and what it represented. And Jesus said, you're concerned that they didn't wash their hands before they ate, but your heart is wicked before God and you're not concerned about that. And Jesus talked about it's not what defiles a man is what is within him. And Jesus said out of the heart proceeds fornication, evil thoughts, adultery, murder, all kinds of sin. Jesus said they come from within the heart of a man or a woman that allows evil desires and evil thoughts to rest within them. They, they ponder it in their heart. They desire it in their heart. And then eventually it leads to action. And there are many people who sit in a jail cell this morning or who had their life taken through capital punishment that committed the act of murder. And society said, your crime is so great. You have to be removed from among us. You can't even walk around as free. And a long time before they committed the act of murder, they allowed hatred to sit in their heart. And they thought about that person and how much they hated them. 
And that's why Christ said, Ye have heard that the law says thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that whosoever hateth his brother is guilty of murder in the eyes of God. And the thoughts of the heart eventually lead us to commit actions that are corrupt. Look down to verse number 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. There's a passage of scripture in Romans chapter one that we won't read this morning, but that would go right along with what we're talking about, where Jesus describes the progression and the lower progression of people who reject God that eventually end up in all kinds of terrible sin. And it says that they see God, they know him as God, but in their heart, they choose to reject him. And Romans chapter one says that on judgment day, they will be without excuse for the things of God are clearly seen through what? Through the things that are made. The Bible tells us that no matter what light, no matter what scripture, no matter what religion, some people may have to follow or not follow, whether or not there is a missionary in their country or not. The Bible tells us that every single tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation has the witness of nature and creation. There is no voice, there is no language where their voice is not heard. And the Bible says that no matter where you're born, no matter where you live, when you look at the mountains and the ocean and you look at the clouds and you look at the sky and you look at the planets, that within your heart, there is a still small voice telling you there is a God that created this and you must seek that God. And I believe that as people seek the truth and as we fulfill our duty to spread the gospel, God will eventually give opportunity to hear the gospel for all who truly seek the one true God. But in Romans chapter one, it says they chose to accept and to worship the creature more than the creator. And people who have no problem with abortion will have a problem with the cutting down of a tree. And you, a, a puppy may have more of protection under the laws than an unborn child in their mother's womb. And what we have done, what that is evidence of, is of a society that sees what God has made and within their heart and their mind, they say, I know God made this. But in their flesh, they say, I don't want to worship God. I want to sin however I want to sin. I refuse what God says. So therefore, in my mind, I will profess there is no God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe what nature itself is telling me. I reject God. And they look at what God has created. And they begin to worship that while in their hearts and mind, they reject the creator all the while worshiping the creation. I believe in being a good steward of whatever God gives us. I believe that we should try to take care of the planet. And I, I would like to turn on water that's clean and breathe air that's not corrupted by a factory right next to my house pumping chemicals into the air. I believe we should try and be a good steward of the earth. But our focus as Christians should not primarily be on trying to save the earth, but rather that the people who live on the earth would have their soul saved. For this creation of God is temporary and one day, as we'll read in a moment, will melt and will pass away and the earth itself that we live in will be no more. But every person you see has a soul that will live one day for all of eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And in Romans chapter one, it says they knew God, but they glorified him not as God. Then it uses this phrase. They became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. What did God say in Genesis chapter six was only evil continually? Their imaginations, the thoughts of their heart, what they considered, what they pondered, what they desired for. And then we see a few verses later, it says the earth also was filled with what? With violence. The book of Proverbs describes a group of people who are violent and it says run not with them. And it says in one place in the book of Proverbs, their sleep is taken away unless they have caused someone to stumble. 
There are some people that are so used to wickedness and evil and that's what their heart desires. They're not able to sleep peacefully at night unless they have hurt someone else or caused another person to stumble. The words when God said in Romans 1, verse 22 or 21, I think, they became vain in their imaginations. Vain means foolish or morally wicked. Imagination means their thoughts, their ponderings, their considerations of their heart. God said became foolish and morally wicked in what they thought about. And if you read the rest of Romans chapter 1, it describes all kinds of sins of the flesh that people fall to as a natural progression of what happens when in your heart you recognize God. You're confronted with His truth and you say, I don't want the truth of God. I reject it. The Bible tells us that man's heart is hard and chooses to reject God. People will say, well, if God is really true, why did he make it so hard? Why doesn't he come to appear to us right now? Why doesn't he let more miracles happen? Why doesn't he make himself plain? And the truth is he has done exactly those things over and over and over again throughout human history. And there were people who saw him and still chose to reject him. In Luke chapter 16, we see the sobering story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man had a palace of a house. And the Bible says he fared sumptuously every day. He was like an American. That means he ate very well all the time. Every day he had a feast. He could eat whatever he wanted to. But Lazarus laid outside of his gate and begged that he could be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And yes, in our flesh, it may be easy for us to look and to think, well, the person who has the most riches and the most toys, they're the person that's winning. And whoever doesn't have the possessions that they have, they are the losers. But be careful with that form of thinking. The Bible rebukes that thought. And the Bible tells us that this rich man who he had all in life that he wanted, he died. And the beggar who sat outside of his gate where the dogs came and licked his sores died also. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 16, the rich man being in hell lifted up his eyes and he called out across the chasm that he could not pass and said to Abraham, would you please send Lazarus, have him dip his finger in water and come that he may cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. A literal story that Jesus told as a fact with the name of one of the people involved, not a parable. And he said that he went to a literal place of fire that tormented him and begged for just one drop of water that he may be relieved. But his request was not even granted. And Abraham reminded him, the tables are turned now. Remember in thy lifetime, you received good things and Lazarus evil. But now in eternity, Lazarus has the true riches for Lazarus knew God. And with his prayer request going unanswered, he thought for a moment and the rich man from hell itself looked up to God and he said, okay, I have another request now. Would you please send Lazarus to my five brethren that he may testify unto them that they may not come to this place of torment. Jason in Sunday school Bible study hour has been talking about the, the instructions of the word of God to be a witness and to try to love people enough to share the gospel with them and how there's any number of ways we can do that. We can witness to them one-on-one. -on -one. We can give them a gospel tract. We can invite them to church where they can hear the word of God preached. But God has commanded us through the Great Commission, to spread the gospel that others may be saved. And we don't know when Lazarus and the rich man lived. We don't know what period of the Old Testament or how close to the days of Christ these two men lived. But in the mind of a lost man in hell, he understood if someone will go and testify to someone who does not know God, then through that there could be a transaction whereby they put their faith in God and believe what he says, and then their eternal destiny will be changed. And a, a, a man in hell itself didn't want his family members to come to where he was. He prayed for someone to testify to them that they may receive the grace of God and be spared his punishment. And Abraham answered him and said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Who knows what is Moses and the prophets? What was he referring to? 
He was referring to the Bible, to the Pentateuch, which they called the books of Moses, and to the prophets, which would encompass the major and the minor, Jonah, all of them. Remember, in the days of Jesus, they had the Bible, and Jesus said, this is the word of God. And Abraham said, they've heard of the stories of the Bible. Let them hear the Bible and believe that. And Lazarus said, no, you don't understand. They don't believe the Bible. But if one rose from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham said, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe the one is risen from the dead. You see, their problem was not that they didn't have enough light, that they didn't have enough evidence, but they had a heart that was choosing to be cold towards God, choosing to reject God. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus doing miracles, raising people from the dead, and people still did not believe. We see the Pharisees who, who set a watch. They paid soldiers to stand and guard the tomb. And the soldiers came back and said, an angel came and rolled the stone away. And he was inside, but he's not inside anymore. He's risen. And the Pharisees said, sends chills up and down my spine to read where the Pharisees said, we'll pay you money to lie and to say that his disciples came and stole his body away in the night. They said, we know he's God. We know that a dead man rose from the grave, but we'd rather pay you to keep that a secret and to propagate a lie that his disciples stole his body. For we already knew he was God and we already rejected him. And I understand that there are some people like the, the, the man came to Christ and he said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I understand that there's some people who are still in the process of working things out and they're riddled with doubt and they want to believe and they wish they could. And they're in that process of trying to believe, but their sins and their love of the world and their things are pulling them back and they're struggling and there's a battle going on for their soul. I understand that but it gives me chills and terrifies me to know that all throughout the earth there are people who see God, know He's God, hear what God says to do, and they choose to reject Him. And on judgment day, when they receive damnation, they will be without excuse. And God will always be just when He judges. We'll go through some verses here on the screen that tell us in the last days, Remember how Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, that, that the, it would be in the end times that after the rapture has taken place, according to my belief of the timeline, and the plagues begin to fall out upon the earth. The Bible tells us in Revelation 9 and 6, we'll read a couple of different places, that horrible plagues begin to fall out upon the earth. People are dying asteroids are falling from the sky. There's all kinds of manner of evil that are taking place upon the earth. The Bible tells us in Revelation 9, 20, and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils nor idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk Neither repented they of their murders or of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Revelation chapter 16 and verse number 8. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory, scorched with a supernatural heat from the sun as an act of God's wrath. And in their heart, they blaspheme him instead of repenting. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the name of the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. One more section, Revelation 6 and 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman and free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. 
and said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand people on the earth during the tribulation period, realizing that it is the day of the Lamb, that it is Jesus, that the wrath of God is being poured out. Yet they refuse to repent of their sins and they blaspheme the name of God for they still love their sin too much to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Number one, in the days of Noah, there were evil imaginations and we can see those in our day as well. Number two, in the days of Noah, there was a limit to God's long suffering, a limit to God's long suffering. Genesis chapter six, we'll move through several passages here to conclude this point, And that will be the end of our message this morning. Genesis chapter six and verse number one. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and they took them wives of all they chose. As with Matthew 24, I'm not here to chase every rabbit trail in Genesis chapter 6, and we'll save that for another day. Rather, we're focusing on the main points that Jesus said we can see a lot of what was taking place in Genesis will be taking place in the last days when he comes. Verse 3, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. Now, the story continues. We'll come back to that part. If you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, this, as I said, is one of the only other passages that we'll go to. And the lengthy passages, we still want to read and follow along instead of having every verse up on the screen so that we still use our Bibles, but have quick reference to the ones that are scattered throughout the Word of God. What I wanted you to note from verse number 3 is that God, who had already been very long-suffering, up to that point in time, said, I will not always be long-suffering. There will be a limit. Second Peter contains many references to the last days, to the coming of Jesus Christ, and to the fact that He is coming and that it will take place. And we remember that He was on that Mount of Transfiguration that we preached through last week. And in First and Second Peter, He talks about Jesus coming. And He says, you better take it seriously. And He said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And Peter said, I was there. I was on the mountain. I saw him in his glorified state. I saw Moses and Elijah. I know he's the son of God. And I know that when he told us, I'm coming back someday, he meant it. And it's going to happen. And one thing that Peter does to remind his readers of the certainty of the final coming of Christ and what that will be like is he points to the Old Testament story of the flood. And several times he references the days of Noah and says, remember that if God executed judgment, then God means it when he said he's going to execute judgment in the future. Second Peter three and verse three, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Well, Christians have always been saying that Jesus is coming and he hasn't come yet. I wouldn't bank my future on the fact that he hasn't come yet because he said he's coming. Verse five, continuing the theme of what we've been talking about. For this, they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. What is he talking about? He's talking about the flood. He points to the fact of the flood and says that they know that testimony of the Bible, but they are willingly ignorant of that same thing we're talking about. They see that it's truth. They're being gripped, but they willingly decide to shove that truth out of the way and reject it. Verse seven, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, 
reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He says the same earth that God allowed to be destroyed with the flood is being kept in store, reserved until the day that it will be judged by fire. Verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God has no time constraints. Time limits do not bother God. God's not fallen asleep. God's not forgotten. According to our looking of history, it's only been about 2,000 years since he went to heaven anyway. And he's not saying it in exact terms, but he's using the phrase a thousand years to God is the same as one day. Because to God, time doesn't really matter. He's only been gone a couple days. He said, I'm coming and I'm coming back soon. And he is. And if it took 6,000 more years and then he came, it's still going to be a soon coming compared to eternity and compared to God's timetable. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He's not forgotten about it, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Just know this about the heart of the God that we serve it's a long suffering heart, it's a patient heart. He waits and he waits. And though he has every right to execute judgment at any moment, he's waiting. And the Bible says here in 2 Peter chapter 3, there's one reason that he's waiting. He's long-suffering. He's not willing or desireful that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there's not one person who's ever lived that will die and be lost in their sins that God wanted to die that way. That God did not die for their sins, pay for them, patiently draw them and call them to himself. No, I reject wholeheartedly the thought that before time, God looked at mankind and said, they will all be unable to say yes to me, but I will select a select few and save them irresistibly against their will with them having nothing to do with it. Save them and the rest of mankind that is just as unequally able to say yes to me. I will choose to damn them to hell and not save them. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible clearly says here that God has offered salvation to all. And I would never want to say the phrase to another human being anything to indicate that I wish that their soul would go to the lake of fire or that they would receive damnation. I wouldn't say that to my worst enemy because God does not want my worst enemy to receive such a terrible fate. What does he say? He says God's not forgotten about his promise, but he's long suffering. He's waiting. He says, let me continue to send out my gospel through my church and through my witness. Let me continue to call souls to repent and I'll give more time for people to be saved. I'll give more time for them to choose to believe. So notice that he is a good God. He's patient. Not only is he merciful, his mercy is inexplicable. And as we look at our country and our world and some of the sins that are taking place and how men call good evil and evil good, and they justify all kinds of things, we look up to God and we say, God, you are a merciful God. Your mercy and your grace is inexplicable that you do not come from heaven and punish us now as we deserve. Thank you. Please spare your judgment, though we know it must come. Please, would you give more time for some to believe and repent? Would you forgive us of our sins? Would you forgive us of our failings? Would you forgive us of the national sins of our country? Though we do not deserve it, would you allow more to come and repent and receive the gospel? That is the only reason we are here. Jesus tried to warn his disciples several times. They're going to come. They're going to take me. They're going to crucify me on a cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Then I'll rise again. Peter said, I'll not let them take you, Lord. And the Lord said, get thee behind me, Satan. You're speaking the will of the devil right now. Do not correct me. I'm God. Then came the day in the garden. After all those warnings, they came to arrest Jesus. And Peter pulled out one sword. And he said, I'll save you, Jesus. 
like Jesus needed Peter and a sword to save him. And Peter went and swung at the head of one of the Roman soldiers and cut his ear off. And Jesus committed one last miracle on his way to the cross. And he said, Peter, Peter, don't you understand? Don't you know that at this very moment, if I were to call to my father, he would send 10,000 angels to destroy the earth and set me free? He put the ear back on the soldier and healed his ear and said, Peter, those that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Do not live through your own strength and might in a life of violence and of fighting all the time and of the sword and of battling will lead you to a violent end. But Jesus said, I don't need your help, Peter, to, be, to save me. I can defeat the earth any moment I want to, but I'm going to lay down my life willingly to pay for your sins and in the like manner, he could come at any moment to execute judgment, but he has chosen to be long-suffering, to be patient, and to allow the call of the gospel to go out into all the earth. I'm sort of in the middle of a thought here, but I'm still going to save it and transition next week into the fact that, yes, we have a God that is long-suffering and that is patient. But Peter and Genesis and Revelation and Jesus also tell us there's a limit to that long suffering. There's a limit to that patience. And though God has waited, though God has withstood, though he has allowed his name to be mocked and he has waited, there will come a day when he says no more. That's it. The doors are shut. I'm executing judgment right now. I'm going to end the message this morning with the call to each and every one of us that we would pray that God would continue to be long-suffering and merciful to us and to all who live in our nation and that He would allow us as the church, knowing that there's a limit to His long-suffering, knowing that the end will come, pray that He would allow us to be His voice in this earth to proclaim the gospel to all about us. Let's bow our heads. If one of the ladies would come and would play, I'm going to give us four to five minutes this morning to pray. That's not a very long time, but you can come to the altar if you would like to move and to pray there, or you can pray in your seat. And let's ask God that he would continue in his mercy to show grace, that he would continue to be long-suffering, that we would not waste our days and our years, but that he would use us as his instruments to proclaim the gospel and that men among us in our country would repent, that we would repent, and that folks would receive Christ as their Savior, and we would be greatly used of Him with the days we have left. Let's pray.